0: This is the Social Leader Podcast. Welcome, my friends. We are inspired by entrepreneurs, founders, faith leaders, innovators, volunteers, and visionaries from every single walk of life. They are the social venturers among us who crave the entrepreneurial adventure of moving beyond charity to integrate and then operationalize their social priorities. Social leaders are the true leaders among us today because they are forging sustainable solutions to help solve humanity's most tangled problems. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Father Justin Matthews. And real quickly, before we begin, I want to tell you that today's podcast is sponsored by Reconciliation Services. We're a nonprofit social venture in Kansas City, Missouri, and we focus on racial and economic reconciliation to reveal the strength of all. You can find out more about our work at RS. 3101.org. And I'm very excited. If you have not checked this out, you've got to. I just launched my first e-course. It's called The Social Leader. And you can go to thesocialleader.org to check it out. It's an e-course that's going to teach you how to lead with greater social impact. Module one teaches you that social venturers Have a social entrepreneurial mindset. They are social venturers. Module two teaches you about bias, how to root out implicit bias in yourself and in your teams, and how to be bias aware as a leader. And in the third module, we teach you how to become a trauma informed and strength based leader so that you can be the most creative leader doing the most good that you can wherever your leadership lane takes you. So definitely go check out the social leader dot o-r-g. Well, I'm very excited today to welcome to the show a very good friend here in Kansas City, Nathaniel Bozarth. Welcome to the Social Leader Podcast, Nathaniel.
1: Thanks so much, Father Justin. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, I am excited to do this podcast. First of all, it's the first time I've ever had an Emmy, two-time Emmy award-winning filmmaker on the podcast. So we're honored to have you, and I cannot wait for people to hear about the resources that you and others uh, are creating and have been creating because what you're doing is really important. But but more than just being Emmy award-winning, you're a storyteller, you're a public historian, you've really dedicated yourself to specializing in anti-racist work, particularly, and correct me if I'm wrong, but centering around the history of residential segregation starting here in Kansas City, but now, you know, moving out beyond that, You've created documentaries, particularly one called Your Fellow Americans, another one, Ari Dream. You've done two TED Talks. Gosh, you've hit a lot of things on my bucket list. I'm starting to get jealous just doing your introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm really glad to have you on the podcast. I know people are going to learn from your leadership journey. Tell us a little bit about your story. How did you become a two-time Emmy Award winning filmmaker? And how did you you start doing the anti-racist work that you're doing now?
1: Yeah, awesome. Um, so I grew up in uh, Olathe, Kansas, um, just a few miles uh, south, southwest of Kansas City. Um, and I attribute a lot of who I am today to my middle school and high school experience there, where I feel truly blessed that as a white male living in the suburbs, I had the sort of the lucky experience of being in income and racially diverse schools. So from an early moment in my life, I was exposed to diversity in a way that a lot of suburban white people are unfortunately not um, aware of. Now, at that time, I had no idea why that happened. I had no idea why the suburbs looked the way they did. So fast forward until college, that I, I sort of started to, um, I mean, really there was this aha moment where my, I went to K-State, I'm very proud of that. Um, a good friend, Mike Wesch, um, anthropology professor and in his classroom talked about um, the truce divide. Right. And there was just this light bulb of like, holy cow, the truce divide, I've heard about that. I've unfortunately heard white people all my life telling me that as a white person, if you found yourself east of truce, that you, um, that you must be lost. And um, I had never had a second thought about it Then in this classroom, K-State um, suddenly learned, oh, it happened purposefully. Like it wasn't just um, the fact that, oh, black people all wanted to live together. And that's why our city is segregated. Yeah, it was so engineered there was Intentional racist policy that led to it. it um, I, I had to do something about it. I had to um, get engaged in telling the truth about history. So so really, um, and also I know I'm long-winded here, um, the, uh, so really from that moment onward, I feel like I have been re-educating myself and re-learning, and I just want to take other people on that journey with me.
0: Yeah, and you've done a really great job of sharing your journey. I know in the beginning, this might be a little bit outdated now, but I know you did a podcast called Wide Ruled. On the past and present uh, equality within the education space, mm-hmm. the so-called achievement gap, which is really just you know yeah. kind of a euphemism for systemic and latent uh, disinvestment and racism within our education right. system and in our neighborhoods. But then you went on and you started doing these documentaries. But you were actually a data science major. I mean, I think if I pull your if I pull your actual title up, you have a master's in BIA. First of all, I got to tell everybody what is that. A master's in
1: business intelligence and analytics.
0: Okay, um, so how do you go from being, you know, somebody who gets a master's in business intelligence analytics to becoming a storyteller and a filmmaker who is dedicating his work to anti-racist work? You got to make that connection for me a little more strongly.
1: Right. Yeah. So it's actually the other way around. I did documentary storytelling. I did. I did a podcast. Um, we did dividing lines. And then I found myself um, working in marketing because I because I needed to make a little cheddar, <laughs> and um, I happened to be at Rockhurst University, and had the great opportunity to get a um, some education there. So it's it's actually like the the data science is just a, an extension of wanting to um, fulfill my curiosity and to make an impact that I can. I knew that I would had this experience weaving sort of qualitative stories about people's lives and experiences, have a a real interest in history. But then getting that data science master's adds another tool to my tool belt of trying to understand data and marshal it as a way to hopefully change minds, open hearts, create impact.
0: Do you consider yourself a leader in some way in this space? I mean, certainly you're an artist, certainly you're a data scientist. But in what way do you consider yourself a leader, Nathaniel?
1: Yeah, I, you know, it's you, you inviting me, I'll just be real honest. You inviting me to be on this podcast has helped me to see myself in that light and to consider whether or not I do consider myself a leader. Mm. Um, I, I think there's so many other people that I look up to. I know that I'm, I'm very vocal. Um, but I don't know that I always see myself as a leader.
0: Well, and I think that's okay, a lot of us, actually have a leadership role and have influence in people's lives but we don't necessarily set out to be a leader in a particular space and particularly i mean if i think we're honest as white men it's very treacherous to ever try to put yourself forward as a leader in Mm the dni space because we don't have the lived experience that our brothers and sisters in the rest of the world have who are in the black and brown community and we're not going to have that experience but you have done a lot of work and you've done a lot of filmmaking and you've been around a lot of leaders and you've heard a lot of stories. So break it down from that angle. I mean, what have you learned that from the leaders that you've interviewed and from the work that you've done, that's enhanced your understanding of the world and the situations that we find ourselves in today?
1: Yeah. I mean so much. I think, um, I think, like probably the the biggest thing that I've learned and continue have continued to learn is how messed up my understanding of history was from the start. My understanding of not just history but reality that my understanding of the American arc was one of continuous improvement and and nobility. Um, and when I first started to to read books that that came from a different perspective about the arc of American history, it it felt like a conspiracy. It felt like, it mm. felt like, oh man, I'm reading this book, like this can't really be true. Like uh, past presidents couldn't have been that bad or that politician, that white politician couldn't have been that racist. Um, and then I'm reading more and more accounts and hearing first person, um, first person experiences of like, Really awful and enduring racist ideas and policy. Um, So completely unlearning everything that I grew up with—that's what I've learned. Um, Yeah, that—that—that's. Well, I think
0: a lot of people don't come that to that realization. First of all, some people never come to that realization. They never actually look at the history. They, you know, they receive the pilgrim story as it's told, you know, shoe buckles and all, when we're little bitty kids. And, you know, they receive the narrative of, you know, perpetual manifest destiny, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, unquestioned. And then if you do start to read history, you know, if you just read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee about the Native American experience with treaty after treaty broken, including the Osage Nation who occupied the territory where we're sitting now here in Missouri. Or if you read the story of um, how the abolitionists fought and how the African-American community endured slavery, murderous and violent slavery, Um, you start to get a completely different picture of America. And it's hard to talk about that, particularly now at Thanksgiving, right? Because we tend to kind of reinforce these same narratives, but you chose to start doing storytelling about a different narrative. And and one of the things that you've done, I want to highlight, I'll put it on the screen. It's called dividing lines A History of Segregation in Kansas City. And this is actually why I wanted you on the podcast originally, because I thought this idea was so powerful and Mm -hmm. and so scalable. Tell everybody about Dividing Lines and and what it does and what you're working on there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Dividing Lines, um, I'm really, really proud of. Um, It came out of Race Project KC um, through the Johnson County Library, and I co-wrote it with Christopher Cook. Um, he and I've worked on a lot of things together and, uh, dividing lines is a, it's a tour, but you need to picture it like a podcast plus like Google maps. Um, so it's, it's, you, you get it through an app on your phone, um, the phone, the app knows where you are. And then as you drive around, it tells you where to drive and locations trigger the next bit of audio. Um, so it's 90 minutes, 25 miles, and you're getting a, a, a real look at how our built space was intentionally made the way it is. Why why does um, East of Troost look so different than West of Troost? Mm. Why does uh, the Paseo look so different um, and yet so similar to Ward Parkway? Right. Um, and I think one of the one of the really big things that is encapsulated in the tour that I hope everyone takes away is that we try to humanize characters. Um, so we talk about J.C. Nichols. Um, we talk about other um, influential people in the history of Kansas City, um, and we we highlight how people uh, perpetuated racist policies just because it was a good business practice or like a best practice. Um, yeah. I I'm, I don't ever mean to come off like a J.C. Nichols apologist, but I think it's really really essential that we understand he believed, he really, truly believed that he was doing the best thing for Kansas City when he put racially restrictive covenants on his his deeds. Uh, Mm. And I think it's important because if today I look back at the past and I look at J.C. Nichols and just impute all of the evil um, that exists in our city to him, then I absolve myself of complicity. I absolve myself of accidentally, perhaps, perpetuating similar policies or analogous policies today. I think that's extremely risky. I think that I have to see myself in J.C. Nichols in order to ensure that I am advancing justice and not inequity.
0: So talk to folks a little bit about this area that you're so knowledgeable about. I love, I'm going to put it on the screen again, Dividing Lines, A History of Segregation in Kansas City. First of all, I love the use of tech. I love the intermixing of policy place and and history and the way that this particular project unpacks that. I know that you're working on um, uh, a virtual version of that now yeah. to T- talk to us about that and when that might be coming out. Cause I should soon be able to just take it from my home, right? Take it That's from right. my
1: home. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's still several months out. I'm really excited. We're going to have a whole purpose-built website for it, um, but we've already filmed the tour using a 360 camera. Um, I'm really excited that we have updated uh, storytelling um, in it as well reflective of some of the recent changes that have happened in Kansas City um, and adding some additional nuance. Um, What what are some of the uh,
0: things that you can see on that tour? I mean, I would imagine that you're going to take us to Troost Avenue and you're going to talk about redlining and, 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 you know, Brown v board and, and segregation through schools and busing. But Mm -hmm. what what are some of the other things that people might know, not know of that are out there that you'll see when you take the tour?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think what, you know, I, I recall the, when we were still doing sort of research for the tour, I, I got to sit on a bus with a group of high schoolers. Um, I think there were, there were high schoolers from two different Kansas City schools, but I know one of them was Paseo, um, Paseo uh, Academy of the Arts. And basically did the tour, did a bus, the kind of real, real life version of the tour, And something that this uh, student from Paseo noted was the sidewalks. He was like, um, so we start out um, kind of Prairie Village, Mission Hills area. And he's realizing, man, where I live, for me to walk to school, uh, the sidewalks aren't up kept the same way. Um, The sidewalks are gonna be broken or it's um, gonna be missing a tile here or there. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the real benefit of doing a tour in real life, um, so you can drive it, or again, even in this um, at-home version, you'll be able to see this, like these tiny details that have real meaningful differences for people's lives.
0: Are there particular places that surprised you that you didn't know about? Like, did did you uncover where something used to be or where something happened that you didn't know about that's included in, in the tour itself?
1: Mm. Um, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, actually, actually, yeah, a big one would be uh, 71 Highway. So we got to talk mm-hmm. with uh, Mamie Hughes um, mm-hmm. for, for the tour. Her voice is, is in there. Um, you may, if you've driven on 71 ever, you'll know there's a Mamie Hughes overpass. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget what street it is. But talking with her about the history of Bruce R. Watkins um, Drive, that used to be Holmes. Like that uh-huh. used to be thousands of people's homes who live there. And I grew up, like I said, in Olathe. So I've come into Kane City, drive on 71, and it never occurred to me. Of oh. course, people lived here. People were, were pushed out of their homes. Um, uh, Mamie was the ombudsman. So she was working to get people the uh, enough money um, to for their property, substantial money to to be able to move to get what they um the money they deserve before they had to be pushed out. Um, yeah,
0: because the city eminent domained like four blocks from 95th Street all yeah. the way to downtown in order to build what's now 71 Highway. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It and yeah. it's a
1: practice that was done all over the country, um, quite specifically as slum clearance. Like it was it was an intentional racist practice. And I say racist, like when I say racist, I really mean that word. It was racially, it was a racially informed decision. Well,
0: because it could have been put in many other places, but the place that was considered probably the easiest to get it through from my yeah. study of that was basically the black community and That's right. and maybe the least expensive to get it through in people's minds.
1: Yeah. Okay, so uh, Brookside Boulevard was uh, an original proposed site, by the way.
0: That's right. I knew that. That's right. So if people want to go on this tour, they can go to NathanielBozarth.com. By the way, you can go to NathanielBozarth.com. You can check out all sorts of different things that Nathaniel's put together. You can check out your fellow Americans. You can read a vlog or watch a vlog that he does. You can also look at all of the different projects, including if you click on projects in the upper left on his website, you can click on this app-based audio tour of the history of segregation in Kansas City, and it's called Dividing Lines. And I strongly recommend that you go check that out. Um, Now, let's say that somebody does that. One of the leaders that's listening to the podcast goes, Okay, I'm in the Kansas City area. I want to go and take this tour. What should we do differently? How do we act differently? Once we begin to unpack and connect the racial segregation and housing and then the wealth gap that we see today, which you hinted at when you talked about sidewalks and blight and disinvestment and where people will go to school, what do we do differently? How do we act differently now as leaders? What should change?
1: Yeah, I think uh, there's, of course, there's several things. Uh, I think one, one I also mentioned before is that the, the disparate investment that we see in our city is predicated on um, an old idea of just following the best practices or following business as usual is another way to put it. Um, if we want to advance justice and equity, we cannot use business as usual mindsets we can't use race neutral policies. We have to be intentional about creating justice and equity and rooting out um, policies that perpetuate injustice and inequity. So so that's the first thing, take a good hard look at like what policies um, do you oversee or in your organization that are creating disparate impact that are making um, things inaccessible. And, and And I really wanna underscore that it's not about um, policies that say that have direct reference to race, because of this history that's that's before us. If right. we do nothing, the trajectory continues, right. and current policies, current again, race-neutral "quote unquote" policies uh, tend to perpetuate existing inequities. And we have a long, five hundred-year history, four hundred-year history of injustice and inequity. Right. That's that's one thing. Um, I think um, another thing that, that people should do, so you, you were talking about the, the racial wealth gap, um, find ways um, in your both your personal and professional life to intentionally invest in businesses owned by people of color. Um, that's a real, tangible, and quite frankly, quite easy thing that anyone can do to make an impact on the disparate investment mm-hmm. um, that, that we see across our city.
0: Yeah. And with the holidays coming up, I mean, one of the things that I'm intending to do with the holidays is to try to buy one gift from a minority owned business, from a black or brown business here in the region to give a gift to those that I'm you know, going to give a gift to anyway. Because number one, we need to be helping small business right now. I mean, with the pandemic, small businesses have been obliterated. And in particular, small businesses in communities of color are being impacted even uh, more extremely just because of the disparate uh, allocation of resources. Now,
1: mm-hmm. I want to go back and, and access to capital, intergenerational wealth. Oh,
0: through, absolutely.
1: Through housing. Yeah. So
0: I want to I want to jump back to something that you said and build on it, though. So you talked about we can't do business as usual. And, and if I jump a little earlier than that, you talked about how business as usual made good sense to J.C. Nichols. So when he was propagating racist, racially restrictive covenants as a housing policy to build the suburbs, and then, by the way, uh, propagating that out through the National Realty Board nationally like a virus, right. like it was going everywhere – when that was taking place, it made good business sense to do it. He was making money. And in a sense, you could talk about these two words interest convergence. We had a convergence of the business interest with the policy. But we can take that same concept, though, and flip it on its head and have interest convergence working for us now to promote equity and have all ships rise together. I know that's something that you've thought and written about and talked about. Mm-hmm. What would interest convergence look like now?
1: Yeah, um, I think... Now, when we're talking, when when our country is in the throes of um, a deep economic, um, I, don't, I don't know what what term we're using, um, uh, trough. It's not a good look um, economically across the country for for individuals. Um, there's huge wealth consolidation happening among um, those that have lots of money right now, big corporations. Um, and it will be, it, there ought to be interest convergence around um, those in the uh, more impoverished areas and middle-class folks. If, if policy, um, man, I lost my thought there. Um, well, I
0: think you're headed down the road that we, if we align our policy with where we wanna get to in the end, are you saying that the interest convergence needs to be more long term? We need to take a more long term view economically, or from a policy standpoint, or what? Where are you driving? I, yeah, it? yeah, I,
1: I got where I was going. I, I don't know how I got lost there. Um, if Sorry. we invest, if, if we invest in the black community, um, it is it is good for the whole community. If we invest in our um, in our poor citizens uh, uh, in, in Kansas City of any race it's going to benefit the whole economic region. Mm-hmm. Um, if So, I, I mean, it's a really simple economic principle, really. If uh, people who have less disposable income, if they suddenly have more disposable income, they're more likely to spend that um, on real goods. Whereas someone who's already very wealthy, if they get a boost in income, um, they're more likely to put it into a mutual fund, or make one or two big purchases, maybe. Um, But there's actually a greater economic impact lower on the income scale, lower on the wealth scale. So in that way, if we invest in our most disenfranchised, disinvested communities, it Mm -hmm. creates greater economic well-being for the whole region.
0: Don't you think, though, that most people just kind of want to get along, that we just kind of want harmony? We don't don't really want... Economic equality or justice or having all ships rise together. That sounds like a good idea. I'm not sure that my one purchase this Christmas is going to make a difference, but I really wish we could all get along. Like, don't, don't you think a lot of people are sort of pitting harmony and justice ag- against one another? I know you did a, a vlog recently about a book that you're reading, uh, From Here to Equality. Talk about that and about the difference between harmony and justice as relates to this conversation.
1: Yeah, totally. I, I do definitely see that, um, that there is a, a sort of longing for, for harmony. And, and I mean, actually, you, you just mentioned a minute ago with that long term, long term, short term um, dichotomy there. If we really want harmony, we need to want it long term, not not just the quick fix harmony. Um, and I, I'm, I was reading this book from here to equality. Really thinking about the end of the Civil War. After the Civil War, um, President Lincoln, um, then assassinated uh, Andrew Johnson and Ulysses S. Grant, took very conciliatory approaches to how to deal with the post Confederate South. Instead of uh, taking the the view of the radical Republicans at that time who said that we needed to Make sure that blacks were enfranchised, that um, the now freed slaves had land and um, the resources to, to live out their lives. Instead of that, um, they actually uh, those those presidents tended to side with white solidarity. They said, um, "Hey, let's uh, let's uh, let, let's let's just make this politically expedient." Like all the white people can get together and feel okay. And that's fine at the expense of the freed slaves. And
0: so they happening. wanted harmony. They wanted everybody to kind of that's just right. kumbaya and get along.
1: And we're at the end of a, if I can be, can I be political? Can I get political? Mm-hmm. I'm being pretty political. You go ahead. Okay. So, uh, the, I mean, we're at the end of a uh, a four-year presidency where the the talking points were incredibly racist, and xenophobic, Um that has um, enlivened a base. I mean, really like as a white person, I'm just gonna, I'll claim this, like I have racist thoughts in me. I have grown up in a racist society as we all have. There's not an American who doesn't have racist ideas live inside of them. The the Trump presidency enlivened those thoughts and um, emboldened many to be more outward with those, those thoughts and ideas. Let's talk about
0: your journey. Let's talk yeah. about your journey, though, because you just said something that I want to focus on, Because, yeah. and I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I don't want to pass okay. over this. You talked about that everyone has these implicit biases, I'll call them. Everybody has these racist thoughts, but that there's a journey that you've been on. But we don't get it right you know, all the time. We don't jump from right. earth to heaven. I One time I had a seminary professor tell me, look, if you try to jump from earth to heaven, you're going to fall and break your neck. You got to take little bitty steps. Talk to me about your journey um, about learning, because as much as as we could talk about politics, I really want to keep this focused on us and what yeah. we can do. Um, there are a lot of podcasts about politics and it's a worthy conversation. So I didn't mean to cut you off. But what you just said is really important. What's your journey been like? And have you made some mistakes along the way? I mean, you're still relatively young. You know, Emmy award-winning filmmaker, but you've been on this journey and learning some things. What have you learned? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So I think you know, uh, it's really important to to take the position that it's going to take me the rest of my life to undo the racist ideas, the bias that live inside of me. I really hold on to that as as a matter of truth and a matter of of in a way hope. Like I hope. That I will learn today, and I hope that I will learn even more tomorrow. My journey of storytelling is a journey of curious relearning. Um, even recently, uh, so so I mean, some some concrete examples. Um, I yeah, got to speak to, uh, I got to speak to a group of people a couple weeks ago, and here I am. Like I I feel that I have this like uh, expert knowledge built up that I have some really great experiences. And I can speak very confidently about the history of our city. Yet I find myself um, talking to a group of people. Um, and and I, I tend to, as a white person, want to talk to white people um, and sort of uh, get my people together. However, when I'm talking to a, a, a group of people that is, that is not all white, mm. when I use the term we, who do I mean? Um, so, so recently I, that was something that I, that really I've been learning and trying to think and and grow and improve on is that if I say we, how can I be very specific Um, Mm -hmm. and really only use we, if I mean all people, all people that might be listening, not just we meaning white people. If I mean we white people, I think that's, there are many times where that is appropriate, but I should be very specific.
0: Well, our thoughts determine our lives. And the language that derived from our thoughts is really powerful in shaping uh, the reality that we find around us. Uh, here's another example I'd love for you to share. We yeah. talked about this concept of resourceful desperation before we came on. And we were talking about yeah. the resourcefulness of individuals, but also this overwhelming barrier that leaves people desperate and unable to move forward. You had a conversation recently with someone yeah. here in Kansas City that challenged you on that phrase. Tell us quickly that story and, and where you're headed now. How did you change your language?
1: Yeah, so this is cool because it does bring in multiple things that we're talking about. So um, I mentioned with uh, taking dividing lines to um, an online experience, we're adding some additional context, um, some additional um, writing. And um, one of the things that I that I added was this term, resourceful desperation, to to try to subtly nod at when we think of um, oh gosh I am going to now pull up a note here so that I um, when 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 we talk about re- um, expanded economic opportunities in the urban core where where people are being informal economy participants right um, so sometimes that could look like um, it could it could look like finding additional ways to find income that are not in the in the mainstream economy. And so I was thinking, oh yeah, resourceful desperation. That's a cool way to to characterize that. Um, Hakima Payne is a is a really awesome uh, community organizer, um, health equity advocate here in Kansas City, and she does a question of the day on her Facebook. And she had raised a question about what are some terms that you use that maybe uh, actually further um, white supremacist ideas or, or racist ideas and uh, I took it as an opportunity to ask her, hey, Hakima, um, I just used this term in this product that I'm that I'm working on um, resourceful desperation, what do you think of it? Um, and she she thought that it was too deficit centric. I um, mean she suggested some alternatives so the, the, I think the, the the one there that strikes me that is most appropriate for my use expanded or sorry informal, economy participant um so it was a really cool moment of getting to um, just be teachable and, and humble and say okay like mm-hmm. i was really excited about this term that i made up i'm not going to use it i'm going to use the term that i that i heard from from my good friend um, mentor and um, i'm gonna put that in the in dividing lines instead of this other term what I
0: like about that story and the story you shared before that for from a leadership lens is that leaders have to practice the virtue of humility. And oftentimes when you get thrown into leadership or you're the one writing the script for the documentary, we forget about how much power we have and how our words and what we say and how we say it really shape the reality of how people engage with the topic that we're presenting, how deeply that topic can penetrate the heart and mind of the one hearing. And also we can do harm inadvertently and purposefully, you know, whether if we're not careful with how we speak, because our thoughts determine our lives and our words determine our reality. And um, I love in that story that as a as a young leader with a big megaphone through all of the art that you're doing the data science that you're doing the work with the de bruce foundation you've got a big megaphone but you're you are a young leader in Kansas City as knowledgeable as you are but you've already uh, um gotten to the place where you've taken on this idea of cultural humility rather than cultural competency frankly none of us are going to be competent in somebody else's culture it's not possible it's not our culture but we can we can adopt a culturally humble position where we're really willing to be corrected and see what we say through the lens of another person's experience and then you have to be willing to change what you say, how you act and how you how you move and, and have your being in the world. And I frankly think that that's a great trait of a social leader. And one of the things that people ought to really glean from this interview with you. I want to end our podcast with this question. I ask every leader this, and this is a chance for you to really talk personally. Are there two or three practices that you have in your life that help you to lead with greater impact or help you to stay agile and humble? Um, anything that you would encourage other leaders listening to adopt so that they can learn to lead with greater impact?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, the number one thing that I would recommend is to lead with curiosity. Um, let your curiosity be your guide. And I say that in to mean, I mean, quite a variety of things. So I think Curiosity and humility go hand in hand, um, for one, because I I, I I must be curious about things that I don't understand. I must be curious about my own self, my own way of being. Um, it allows me to be more reflexive when I'm curious. Um, and it also allows me to ask really good questions of, of those that I'm working with or I'm leading um, yeah, I, I can go. I, I love curiosity. I have like a whole list of like things that curiosity does. I, I mean, recently I, I was leading some meetings at the DeBruce Foundation and to be honest, it didn't go great. Mm. Um, like and it was it was on me. Like I did. I, I, we had like kind of three meetings lined up. The first one didn't go great. So instead of like beating myself up um, and thankfully it wasn't like a, a risky scenario where like failure meant something fatal or whatever
0: a career uh, limiting move right, right.
1: yeah so, so I was like, okay let's 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 try something else like i was i was very excited then to go into the next meeting curiously trying something else like curious like hey maybe this will work um and i feel like it, it positioned me for for greater su- success to take it that way than i don't know with uh oh what i what i tried didn't work oh no
0: sure So curiosity, and I think it's something that ties back to your earlier point about learning alternative narratives. You know, like I'm taking away from what you're saying um, and and you're speaking like a great data wonk, right? Like somebody who really loves the data, who loves the history, who loves the storytelling. Um, Question and be curious about your assumed narratives. Question and be curious about why are things the way they are? You know, and it reminds me in the social leader e-course, I teach that when you encounter something that really um, puts you off with somebody, instead of saying what in the world is wrong with you, begin by asking first, you know, Mm -hmm. what happened that she would respond that way to me? Mm -hmm. What happened to you? Or what did, what did I do that caused that response? But that requires a level of curiosity that a lot of us don't exhibit. You know, we just want to move on because- Ultimately, we think we already know, right? Is there yeah. anything else that you want to share with us as, as we wrap up, Nathaniel?
1: Oh, man. Uh, you know, I just add one more thing about curiosity. Cur- the, the other thing as a as a producer of things hmm. is that if I produce things that I'm curious about, it's going to be better for everyone involved. Like my my stories are better to consume if I'm actually curious about what I'm telling the story about. If I create something that isn't interesting to me that doesn't arouse my curiosity, it's not going to arouse other people's curiosity either.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and bringing that curiosity to leadership, the best leaders I know ask way more questions than they give direction. And so I really resonate with what you're saying. And again, I, I just want to thank you for sharing uh, your time with us. Thank you and the folks that you work with uh, for creating Dividing Lines, A History of Segregation in Kansas City. Um, Thank you for being willing to share vulnerably as a white man about your journey towards diversity, equity, and inclusion in your own life and trying to embrace an anti-racist lens in your own work. Um, We need more and more people to do that. We need to not be afraid of failing because we will fail in the midst of doing that. But I appreciate the leadership that you're showing by working on your own heart and by putting out such great Emmy award-winning art. And uh, thank you for the work that you're doing here in Kansas City. I hope you have uh, many, many more years of curiosity and great creativity to follow. I'll watch closely with where you're headed. Thank you so
1: much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Well, hang tight with me as we wrap up. And friends, I want to thank you for joining me again on the Social Leader Podcast, episode number 33. And if you enjoyed this podcast, I have two huge favors to ask of you. Number one, I've got to get this podcast out to so many more people. And I need you to hit that like button, hit the YouTube bell button so you know that when I go live and if you're watching us on Facebook or Twitter Periscope, wherever you're finding us, share it, like it, share it out on groups and help us Uh, spread this idea of social leadership and the operationalizing of our diversity, equity, and inclusion and other social priorities. And second of all, if you like what you heard today and you want to learn to lead with greater social impact, then I invite you to go to thesocialleader.org, check out our brand new e-course called The Social Leader Essentials, where you can learn all about how to lead, with greater social impact from your leadership lane and wherever you are in life. Well, once again, thank you for joining me on the Social Leader Podcast. And until next time, my friends together, let's learn to lead with greater social impact. See you next time.